Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to today's Experimenter Salon. Um, my name is William Fowler, and I've contributed to the Experimenter section of the London Film Festival um, this year. I'm very pleased that we have uh, filmmakers and artists today we can have a chat and there'll be a chance to ask um ask some questions and quite informal so we'll sort of chat for a while and then we'll open it up um the the artists we have uh, today representing um anya kirshner whose film moderation uh, shows on saturday evening so that's that's still for karma so 8 15 um definitely do come for that if, if it's not already sold out i imagine it may well be so um we'll i don't know i um, and then representing, um, in the future, the eight from the finest porcelain, we have Larissa Sansa and Lauren Send, um, and, uh, uh, and the, the, the two works under discussion um, explore uh, moderation kind of works and ask questions around the horror film genre. Um, and uh, they, in the future, the eight from the finest porcelain kind of riffs on themes around science fiction within a broadly sort of political context. So um, could we just sort of start... Um, Perhaps you two just say a bit about the background to the film, which screened uh, last Friday, wasn't it? So people have had a chance to have seen, seen the work. If you could uh, begin with just saying a bit about the background to the film and perhaps, um, you know, perhaps how your interest in genre developed and if indeed you think of it in those terms, whether by working with the sort of science fiction things. Uh, well, we kind of always work together. Um, Soren usually writes the script, and I, 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 my background is visual arts. So, uh, but somehow I always make film, and Soren kind of writes the scripts. But uh, before that, I used I used to make a kind of more direct documentaries about what's happening in Palestine. Okay. And so what's um, what I recently started. Um, doing in my work is find a way of contextualizing Middle Eastern politics in a completely different way. Okay. Uh, and I feel that it just started becoming, my work started becoming more and more surreal, but I feel that the situation in Palestine is so surreal that it's quite hard to really talk about it in, yeah. in uh, uh, very direct ways. So I mm. just felt that it was actually becoming, it, it was more honest to talk about in a more, in, in a more fictional way. Mm. Um, so um, I think hence the sci-fi uh, direction and um, in the last three films we worked uh, on those films together since 2009 uh, uh, and the film that I'm showing here is almost like the third film okay. of a trilogy that we made together uh, the first one um, shows uh, a, the first Palestinian woman uh, Palestinian astronaut uh, landing on the moon and planting the Palestinian flag on the moon. 
and the second one imagines the future of uh, the entire Palestinian state in one uh, high skyscraper. Mm. And the third one is uh, a bit more uh, <coughs> kind of elaborate and complicated. There's a lot of script in it, so it's kind of veers away from uh, the usual kind of much more visual direction that I had. Uh, so, um, mm. and, and, and it's, uh, it's about <coughs> finding a way of changing the historical and political narrative that's going on mm. in Palestine right now. So it's kind of like a comp we're competing on narrative. I don't think that, I think when situation has become so uh, it has reached such a stalemate in uh, uh, Middle Eastern politics that sometimes it just seems that it's not really that the, the fact that the world doesn't understand what's happening. It's more that uh, you know we have two forces that are competing on uh, delivering a narrative. Mm -hmm. And in in this film, uh, the um, the hero of the film wants to change that narrative. Well, I, I noticed that you, yeah. she calls herself a narrative terrorist. Exactly. Comes yeah. a term that's used in, used now. Um, and how, how has it been working together, sort of, with that, with those kind of ideas and this, you know, working from a, perhaps a more visual approach to this more sort of script-based work, as you said. I mean, uh, that's been very interesting. We started with quite almost sided films based on a soundtrack only, so they were very visually conceived, and then with working with the same musician throughout these three past films. And we developed from, from wanting to depict, the first one was a, a, a riff of uh, Stanley Kubrick's uh, mm. Space Odyssey, mm. conquering that whole uh, first American on the moon and passing it off as a Palestinian accomplishment, but really just with a soundtrack. And the second one was, was um, was the same, but really unveiling just this piece of architecture, housing an entire population, so three million people in one giant structure. So it was like revealing various chapters, the lobby, the floors, how each floor has uh, the monuments from, from real life Palestine replicated inside the, the, the lobbies uh, for that feeling of uh, homeliness. Mm -hmm. And in that, it's also a very sided film. We have some 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 uh, elevator ads and stuff like that that come with a, a bit of information, but otherwise quite silent and, and musical. And then the idea for this uh, new film came actually from that nation estate, as it was called, the film. In that, in this designer skyscraper, they um, <coughs> they have designer crockery as well, like designer plates with the. Palestinian kefir, uh, some resistance symbol, also mm. to sort of to play identity uh, mm. uh, politics there. And we decided eventually after having that, we got into the very idea of archaeology as warfare, namely that, you know, I mean, archaeology has always been a national sport in Israel-Palestine. It, it's the only place that I know of that has breaking news in archaeology on, as, on their front page newspapers. Um, and it's always been a matter of establishing that national identity from early on. So if you establish a national identity and the archaeology supports it, then, then whatever narrative you've spun mm. on, anything becomes true uh, by default. So it's a mythic narrative used to, to, yeah, to, kind of create, to inform current realities or future. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if, you, if you're, you're a narrative that sort of 
predates the state uh, 3,000 years back into history mm. is verified by a piece of crockery in the, in the ground. Uh, well, mm. then all of a sudden you have the idea of historical entitlement to that land mm. completely justified. So we thought, well, from that nation-state building we have already the, the crockery. And if the idea of archaeology being as warfare is that, well, you, you, you shape your own narrative to fit your own ends, uh, and then you dig in the ground to support that narrative, then you really reverse the idea of archaeology, in mm. the sense that you dig, and the, the story about the object you found has already been told. Uh, we can do that too, and, and create our own myth, and then deposit porcelain for future mm. archaeologists to excavate. And that was an idea that developed, and we realized that it was all, yeah. And then what we, we started working like we did with the previous projects also with Larissa doing visuals and us coming up with the outline. I go away and do a script that then was more wordy this time, and then we switch, and 17 rewrites later, we did the film. <laughs> Did you find that, I mean, you said that how science fiction was a way of, in some way, addressing the kind of surrealism, as you put it, of the situation. I mean, I mean was there an, also perhaps a way of addressing a, you know, a controversial political issue through using this as a kind of another means that would enable somehow the film to be made or supported or to, kind of, you know, to, so it would, it would change its sort of journey through sort of exhibition uh, possibilities and context or just for how it might be received. Do you see what I mean? Uh, possibly, but I didn't uh, uh, choose the sci-fi approach because I wanted to kind of get the funding. And no, no, I'm not suggesting that, <laughs> sorry. Right. No, it wasn't difficult to kind of get the funding I'm because sure, of the political yeah. message, yeah. so if, yeah. if that's the... Um, but uh, obviously it's... Um, because it's political, it's sometimes, I think, necessary for an artist to find a different way of talking about it than it than a politician, mm. because there are so many layers um, to the debate that uh, kind of get lost or in, in the emotional level of what mm. really happens to the people who are, say, under occupation is not really ever, doesn't even come, doesn't come through uh, mm. when you're talking about, when you're just watching the news. Mm. So it's, it's kind of important to find um, a, a different medium by which you can tell the same story, and mm. even though it seems so surreal is actually it's all just based on what's happening in present-day Palestine. Mm. Um, um, it's just a different way of uh, approaching it. Yeah. And as we always talk about also with the science fiction part, that it's really more about the fiction than the science part in the sense mm. that it's really about highlighting the fact that fictionalization doesn't necessarily mean that you cannot apply to reality afterwards. In the sense mm. that you need that refuge, not just as a sort of a narrative device to illustrate certain mechanisms of occupation or whatever, but actually it's out here that the narrative that then gets applied mm -hmm. gets formed. Mm -hmm. So so that's more important. And also science fiction does one thing for, for the Palestinian predicament that works really well in the sense mm -hmm. that what's what's absent in Palestine is really a present tense. Mm -hmm. uh, you, 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 you linger towards the past and, mm -hmm. and towards the future. Ambitions for a state versus you know, the mourning of the lost uh, mm. land. So the present is, is always suspended in a sense, which lends itself well to being talked about in a futuristic setting. Mm. So. Yes, yeah, so fic sort of fictions, or so-called fictions, so circular realities, having kind of complex dialogues. Um, Anya, could you um, sort of tell us a bit about the background to your film? And I know that you've 
been interested in explore John in various ways for a while in previous works. Um, if it was perhaps more explicit in some ways in this one, it feels like with the almost you asking questions about what a horror film is and what how horror genres even work. So it feels like you're really investigating quite pointedly. So perhaps tell us a bit about a bit about the general genesis of the project and again maybe your interest in genre more yeah. broadly. I mean all my previous films and also the films that I made together with David Panos in the past, they all to some extent um, started from a, a particular idea or something we wanted to cover, but then there was always very soon a decision to kind of find a genre to do that in. Right. So I think my whole kind of um, thought process somehow seems to, for some reason or another, very related to um, you know, coming up with like starting to understand what I want to make a film about, but then also immediately going, hang on, what's the right genre for this? Almost like a painter would say, which palettes would I would I choose or something? Um, and I think that came generally from an an ambition towards cinema, but without really wanting to participate in. A kind of mainstream cinema. Okay. Um, so, um, what genre offers generally, I think, is that it gives you um, um, a kind of pop cultural basis um, of of kind of shared knowledge about a film prior to even seeing it, and um, and somehow, I mean, obviously, it's very broadly speaking, but each genre seems to sort of be particularly good at dealing with a particular type of problem or a story or something. So um, the um, some of the films, for example, from the past was also kind of using sci-fi to talk about the present and kind of an impasse. There is another film that was a Western, which very much deals with the gentrification and loss of land and the Western with this idea of the the frontier and the kind of expansion um, and the kind of, you know, this kind of the way that in Westerns conflicts always seem to be fought over land and who got there first and who's going to build the railway. Mm-hmm. That, that made it very kind of, you know, appropriate somehow to use. So... So somehow in my career, I guess I've gone through working with sort of soap opera, sci-fi, um, Western, costume drama, um, historical, kind of more like a more historical kind of, not exactly reconstructions, maybe the wrong word, but let's say um, that. And um, somehow now with moderation, there was uh, there was this idea to to make a horror movie, but it got maybe more even more invested in kind of research. So it's like not just the the film exists obviously as a feature length film, but then it also in the whole development period and now also afterwards, it went through a series of events and symposiums and workshops that are organized and that are also invited like other thinkers and writers to. So it was um, maybe like the most intense engagement 
right. I've had with the genre in terms of what it might be able to do, mm. not just for the topic I wanted to talk about, but maybe in this case also for the first time having a topic that I couldn't quite fathom yet. So even though I think all the films that I've made were some way of working through a problem or a question or a set of questions that mm. I didn't quite understand, the earlier films were more didactic. They had more opinions about, you know, and, and kind of clear ideas that they mm. wanted to convey mm. about, um, uh, you know, what was going on. Whereas this film, like, genuinely, probably like you, and that sounds also... Kind of, I, I'm really glad that we're talking together because I think there's loads of points of, you know, connection. There's a sense that, you know, sometimes you just end up with a problem that is so big, you know, like you say, this kind of conflict of narratives that, you know, that you just, you have to make something in order to think through it, at least in, in my case. And, um, and horror seemed to me the genre per se, to deal with this type of impasse. So, um, because it's definitely the kind of, um, the kind of moment where something has to transform really radically mm. and where the, the whole liminality of, of life and death and, you know, what is a subjectivity or a consciousness, like all these things get subverted. And it's also like an incredibly, um, like, um, visceral mm. um, experience, very, very effective, mm. and something that I always found really hard to deal with. Actually, as a kind of as a genre in itself, I'm not a horror fan. I, mm. I, there were a lot of films that I watched and I wanted to watch <clears throat> in the research, but I was really struggling with it too. So, um, so I guess it comes back to. Um, if you weren't, if you weren't, yeah. if you weren't a horror fan, and no saying you yeah. should or shouldn't be, but perhaps what this may be a really difficult question to answer. But is a can you sort of pinpoint your perhaps where your interest in genre or horror, even the horror genre specifically, kind of comes from? Is it just like is it about engaging with popular forms, or is it a kind of almost like cinematic inquiry, like kind of trying to understand? In this case, neither. I think it was right. really a kind of question about where you reground a different kind of ethics. Okay. And how you deal with that once you've all the kind of more available narratives are, are seem exhausted. Okay. So I think um, question of like, yeah, political, um, like collapse of orders and, and kind of rational politics let's say mm. so um i think one of the earliest things that got me interested was reza negaristani's cyclonopedia which is a novel that deals with the middle east as a kind of sentient entity and tries to um you know kind of understand like he refers to this idea of i think something that he calls the ultimately messed up space and sort of wire Foucault, he, he ends up with this idea that um, at a certain point in, in a kind of conflict, civil war, colonial kind of nexus, um, things get so messed up that the common ground for things cannot be found anymore. Mm. He talks about Foucault's Chinese encyclopedia in that relation where you know, the same, I don't know if people know that, but it's a kind of description of an encyclopedia with 
animals in categories like animals with wings, animals that have knocked over the water pitcher, animals that look like, you know, dots from a distance or something. So you realize that actually, how would you even start putting things in categories? And then Foucault uses that about like, trying to talk about this collapse of mm. the, the sensible and mm. the kind of the communicable. Mm. Um, so, so yeah. It's, it's interesting there's a sort of point of connection between between both your works of like some using something that's like genre being something that's in some way defined or at least known there's a sense of what we think we have an understanding of genre and yet perhaps for, for both your works it's become a way of kind of tackling or just something that's kind of unknown or difficult to kind of articulate in some way or um or address a problem or something that I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but that sort of resonates a little bit from from what has been said. Uh, I'm not a sci-fi fan. You know, this is other things. I'm a horror fan, but I'm not a sci-fi fan. Okay. (laughs) Next film, I should do horror. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, I don't. I've never watched Star Wars even. Okay. um, But the entire team that we work with are complete sci-fi fans. Okay. They get excited about spaceships, and so it's nothing that we. You know, we're discussing, uh, but I think that um, uh, I use the genre in, in the sense that it kind of um, um, approximates Middle Eastern politics to uh, an audience uh, that it, it kind of brings it closer to um, various audiences, much more universal. Mm. It's also kind of a comment on on just in, in general our culture, what we. Uh, the signifiers and that we have, what we uh, get influenced by. Mm. So it's very hard to kind of keep, uh, kind of stay in your intellectual bubble when you're, you mm. come from a, a certain background and, mm. uh, and not really realize that actually the world is completely influenced, even if you don't want to, you're influenced by pop and, yeah. and film. <clears throat> yeah. And I think film maybe, what fascinates me by film, um, is the fact that um, it's, it empowers a nation because if, I mean, we, for example, we, we all know about Americans, uh, but I think we all know about that because we watch, we're bombarded by American mm. films. Uh, and I think that kind of, no matter what the Amer- American politics are, you're always uh, drawn to uh, or you sympathize with Americans because you feel that they're close, you know who they are, you, you know how they live even if you've never been there, mm. if, even if you've never set foot in America. Mm. Um, and, and somehow that's, I feel that that's, that's the power of film and, and maybe somebody who comes from Palestine where it's just, you're an alien in the world, you're just, oh, you're, you're scary, you're Middle Eastern, you're, for me, it is quite important to use something that's, uh, first of all, uh, disarming. It's a, it's a, uh, and, and also it, it's more informative than instead of you being uh, the subject of, say, the news, you actually take on this power. You're, you, um, you kind of, you claim that right to make films and and and. Um, and, and fiction, not documentaries, not be subjects of documentaries. And it change, it shifts the power balance. I think mm-hmm. so. For me, that's maybe at the heart of why I I, I use the, um, mm-hmm. uh, these genres or co- comments um, on a more universal kind of yeah. form. Yeah. I mean, how, 
I'm sorry, I just yeah. all of a sudden thought that you saying that you did soap opera and stuff like that mm. before as well. I'm just realizing that I mean, all your small films have been like that. Well, you did horror. You did soap oh, yeah, opera. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I was just realizing. <laughs> you've been doing all of these things like over the years. I was just realizing when you're talking that maybe it is not necessarily an embrace of those forms or those expressions or that pop cultural segment or whatever it is, but more the constant battle with the academic bu bubble, as you were saying, that this antithesis, this, these life dichotomies in the sense that instead of resorting to and sticking to the accepted forms of representation of political conflict, whether it be uh, this part of academia, that part of academia, or this uh, documentary sort of approach or whatever it is, then embracing those other ones and actually sort of uh, communicating in a different way, the very same context in a, in a different way, but also in a sense uh, dealing with negotiating the expected approach, because that's been a recurring pattern also in Larissa's career, mm. this, this constant sort of reference to the, well, but when you're, the, the sense of loyalty towards a topic, like a certain topic lends itself or comes with it, a set of expectations, uh, an expected loyalty towards the documentary form or the essay form or the journalistic form or whatever it is. Whereas Lewis, like from early on, decided to embrace, I mean, some of the first films were, were spaghetti western, uh, soap opera, that kind of thing, which of course is also a comment on existing approaches. That All those were conceived like very handheld at a time when, when uh, the most accepted form was was the documentary form, the, the very valid documentary form, because that was a very important approach as well. But there was constantly throughout Lewis's career this conflict between expectations, not only from audiences, but also specifically maybe even from curators, mm -hmm. who, who wanted a specific type of handheld documentary work, because this is accepted, mm -hmm. uh, accepted documentation of this particular, or, or even artistic approach mm -hmm. to this particular topic. Um, and instead of, instead of sort of accepting that curatorial mm -hmm. dictum, in a sense, I think Larissa just took it one step further and said, no, I'll go more glossy and I'll go sci-fi and I'll stick mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. We're not, yeah. sorry. No, I think that's why it's so important for me to do very high productions, because I just want to kind of break the cliche of what a, uh, an artist first, an artist has to kind of produce or what mm -hmm on top of this, a Middle Eastern artist has to produce. Mm -hmm. um, so it, the form is very, quite important. And how has that been, sort of, you know, I suppose, at least in the UK, historically, you know, artist experiments film has been about <coughs> perhaps resisting narrative and, re, you know, resisting techniques that involve kind of seduction or music that are kind of mood affecting. But I think obviously, you know, both works of, you know, Going there and going with that, I mean, we talked about you know narrative terrorism, and you you know with your bio, you talk about being you know you describe your works very overtly as narratives. Um, I mean, how have, have you asked? Have you sort of reflected on that historical relationship and what it means to be? Well, I mean, I don't know if you think of yourself yeah. as an artist filmmaker or not, but you know that the kind of different spheres and perhaps um, certain types of tendencies that have been historically passed down. I mean, I always thought it was a really weird ideological argument to call like kind of structuralist filmmaking or whatever kind of um, sort of neutral just because it didn't have music or it didn't have, I mean, I kind of, 
um, uh, I've watched Ernie Gerr work or work by Liz Rhodes and I have a really strong um, emotional response like I might have even to a narrative or I watch you know big Hollywood special effects and that would be the only thing of the film that I'm interested in but I'm watching them like an artist's work or something. I mean, mm. I, I always I always thought this kind of idea that narrative per se was sort of manipulative and and uh, you know non-narrative was uh, progressive in some way and neutral mm. was very very strange kind of um, maybe also a sort of inheritance of a modernist over reliance on rational kind of organization of, of things and the kind of, you know, sort of, you know, I, I don't think like neither of these things, they're heavily political. Mm -hmm. They just function in very different ways. So I think the rejection of maybe a lot of what was kind of traditionally in the UK more um, kind of kind of put forward as, as what an artist's film should look like. Um, was also a kind of, and I think, you know, there's works that cross over. So I think actually even like Liz Rhodes is a really interesting example for, for someone who's sort of manages to do both. But, um, but it, it, I just didn't buy it. So, <laughs> so and, and, and there was a kind of desire to, um, I mean, it's not that I'm following a narrative that is a kind of conventional three-act structure or something like that, mm -hmm. but um, I've always thought that one of the strong points of like a kind of watching a film would be that you would be very stimulated effectively and there would be some transfer of kind of, a, yeah, like a elements of, of, of a relatable experience, let's say. So... Um, and that doesn't mean that I prefer narrative films sure. to non-narrative films or that, you know, it just happens in my own mm -hmm. practice that this is, mm -hmm. this is it. But I think the way it's talked about is fundamentally, like, people are not questioning their own prejudice mm -hmm. about that. And I think that people, like, I mean, for me, obviously, that was, like, Derek Jarman was a big discovery during art school. So I think there were, I do believe that there were certain practitioners that, that always were in that line and in that tradition. And also yeah. like, you know, if you talk about, yeah, spaghetti western or even soap opera, they were always genres where actually quite a lot of, um, you know, um, people that were having unusual <laughs> and very politicized kind of practices um, ended up working in. You know, so I don't think, I don't, you know, I think there is a lot of, I mean, even in South America, there's a lot of artists, kind of filmmakers, people more from that, that ended up in, at some point, kind of politicized soap opera making or mm -hmm. like all these, all these kind of things, like Kobuchi has a very strong kind of left background, very grounded in this 70s Italian movement. So, um, so I, I think that it's more about um, re-finding um, a better narrative also, <laughs> how we narrate the, the legacies and the kind of genealogies of the kind of films we are making. Well, I mean, I'm a, I, I like a lot of genre movies, and I think there's lots of really fascinating, really interesting horror movies and mm. science fiction movies, and it's very easy to kind of just 
say certain types of films are all a certain way or have certain politics or I mean you've, you've, you've sort of both talked about um, all, all three of you talked about um, uh, different types of language and maybe different audiences or kind of I guess relationships to popular culture and I'm just sort of curious how you thought about the context in which these works are seen so how do you feel about them being presented like alongside other examples of that genre or things that are, you know works in that genre and I, I'm sort of interested in particularly with moderation because you we haven't talked about this yet but you've directly involved um, actors who've previously been in horror movies and they haven't actually what's been curious I noticed is that in your own writing about the film you haven't actually highlighted that at all as far as I've seen but and yet horror fans would be really like oh my god that you know the guy from this cannibal film is in your film. I can't believe that. But yeah. you've not, you've chosen not to do that, which is quite, you know, which is interesting. Well, I would, I would probably have written it if I had more space in sure. the synopsis. Sure. <laughs> and, and it's also like, to be honest, I mean, it, the, I think what got me interested in horror was Andrei Zulawski, actually. Right. And yeah. what I found really powerful about Andrei Zulawski was that precisely he could kind of join a kind of horror narrative to political to a uh, love erotic kind of narrative and really open up the way that these three areas that are usually divided into different um, genres and different forms of our thinking and discourses are kind of fused and, and constantly actually impinge on each other in, in the way things really happen. But the question was really, does this work? You know, is it really like this? This would still be my question. It's the first time that I've just used a genre and said, should this genre kind of live or die? Can we talk about things in this genre in a way that will get us over kind of impasse? Um, so I've tried to send the film, I mean, I've submitted the film to horror film festivals. Um, I would love like a horror fan to go and <laughs> go, like, what the fuck? <laughs> and um and 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 generally I'm really like with all the films there's a there's a sort of um there is a sort of openness where they would go and what they could do in different contexts. It's almost an experiment. Mm -hmm. So um but in this case it hasn't so far no horror film festival wanted it. <laughs> so yeah. I mean it, it's um it definitely, I think it does work in those terms. But I mean, in terms of genre, curiously, horror specifically, there is almost a mini genre of meta horror films. So, like mm. Quadlet Vampire by mm. Pierre Portobello. There's a strange um, cinema verite style film called um, Dream, was it Dream Demon Lover? No, Demon Lover Diary. And I can't remember who made it, it's on Vimeo, it's really interesting, but it, yeah. they're following the production of a horror film, but it's a kind of cinema verite thing, and they get very caught up with the relationship, and they're quite unstable characters, and then bits would start to get a bit fictional. Anyway, so there's a bit of a, it's curious that, unless it's just other things I don't know about, it seems like horror particularly seems to lend itself to this kind of meta-narrative mm. stuff, and there is like, maybe calling it a genre is too too overblown, but there is this sort of tradition or something. Yeah. Which is, so people are kind of interested in posing questions about it, I think, so there's a sort of lineage of sorts. Um, how, how about how many, <coughs> your, you know, your, your film being presented, you know, say, would you submit to a sci-fi film festival? 
Uh, yeah, I think we even won an award. Abu Dhabi, no? That was uh, a... uh, that wasn't a sci-fi. That was a science. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I was wrong. What is a science science fiction? We are in science fiction film festivals. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's fine. That's nice. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's funny with with every film that that we've done, all of a sudden there's this added bonus of all of a sudden reaching into new Mm -hmm. territory. And and we see a lot of sort of interest from sci fi fans. Mm -hmm. We've all of a sudden uh, a lot of things like that. a lot of offers are coming in from yeah. I mean, sort of. I think in terms of artist filmmaking, this feels like a kind of, as you know, we're shining a light on it today. It's become perhaps more of a concern. You know, ben Rivers' film, you know, Ben Rivers has worked in this way as well. And yet, I do feel like there's a broader interest for kind of hybrid forms that goes beyond artist filmmaking. Like sort of generally, there's a kind of interest in exploring into relationships and kind of pulling apart things more as part of part of doing that. Um, one thing I wanted to ask Betty specifically was, you know, we're sort of saying how there's this thing about horror and meta horror, but with science fiction, there's, you know, the kind of codes of what science fiction filmmaking is is a little bit different, and perhaps it sits more comfortably on genre among across kind of different forms. So science fiction is actually about <laughs> writing as well. So in, in some way, you know, science fiction writing looms kind of larger, or as large, or maybe larger than sci-fi films, possibly mm-hmm. depends who you're talking to, maybe. And obviously, you're you're a writer yourself. You know that's what that's as I understand it. That's what you do a lot of yeah. the time. And I wondered if that you know we've been talking about filmmaking and kind of you know we could talk more about. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Kind of codes and in terms of, terms of genre, but is there anything about actual writing? And is, you know, do you feel like that's actually a slightly different palette to draw upon? Or is there, you said you hadn't watched Star Wars, so it's kind of different references perhaps. Uh, well, I think we worked in a very. Um, we finally found a way of working together where uh, we don't have to work at the same time. 
So I work on visuals and, and Sian works on the writing and, mm. we, and we work separately and then we kind of uh, look at what each of us did and then we kind of get a, I um, respond to Sian's writing and with visuals and he responds to my visuals with more writing. So we kind of build up like this. Um, so in that sense, I'm sure it's different from when you're writing your yeah, your yeah. own novel because it's um, we we I think what we struggled with uh, in in the last film is to is how to uh, give both script and visuals the same uh, um, <coughs> weight because sometimes I think when when you the writing could really kind of uh, overcome or mm. overrule all the visuals mm. because it's so straightforward. Like when mm. with writing, there's a rationality that comes with it, mm. and it's so straightforward that it could kind of uh, influence the visuals. It could kind of let you was know that what, what's illustrating what or what has dominated. Exactly. So, so I found myself either. thinking about this quite a lot mm. when I was watching your film actually and how it worked in those terms. So, so yeah. So we didn't want to. The visuals to illustrate the writing, nor the writing to illustrate mm. the visuals. So, and I think we, we thought that uh, what would really make a good piece of work is if we actually find a way of uh, giving both a voice and and somehow making them work together. Mm. So that that's why I think we rewrote the scripts and the visuals. I, I read the visuals 17 times. Mainly to pull them apart, right? I mean, there's a, a couple of places only where the visual... I mean, the good thing is that Larissa has this highly imaginative uh, way of working with visuals. Uh, so, like, in the beginning it was thought of as a, as a video essay. It's supposed to be sort of a journalist interviewing uh, this narrative uh, rebel leader and uh, on a, a piece of found audio somewhere. So we, we're supposed to basically just have a... It was supposed to be sort of a, a fictional video essay. So a very rational argument uh, about why this is important historically, uh, uh, futuristically, and, and academically. And then... Larissa started me, from me having that basic setup, like a dialogue form, mm -hmm. uh, where we agreed on on, on the basic uh, ideas. Larissa took it and and went for it in a way that I had never imagined, uh, which was great because then a couple of her initial visuals made 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 it clear that we were in sort of dream fantasy territory rather than academic video essay mm -hmm. here. Uh, and, and so I guess that that's another amusing thing, talking about the genre uh, approach here, that sci-fi really came later than just knowing that the kind of visuals that we wanted to have a support for, for the main argument, had to be CGI-based, because otherwise we couldn't get there. In, in the in, in grandeur, basically. Um, so, it's it's more or less like if you look at the film, it's composed of thirty-one scenes, and I think three of them has have spaceships, and that's really your sci-fi signifier. The rest yeah. of it is just talking about the future, and that doesn't make for, you know, I mean that's the thing. Very very few things actually make up that that whole. I was thinking genre. sound is curiously. I mean, it's maybe. Sound design and music can be quite a sort of genre signifier in a way, and maybe, so you, I think the sound design of your work has the kind of sparseness, but a kind of an atmosphere. And then I think in moderation, it's perhaps different. But the 
the kind of main musical refrain. I mean, it's newly composed work, but at the same time, sort of feeling like it referencing certain kind of horrors of genre tropes, horror music genre tropes. So these kind of more sometimes pushing to the fore, but also being quite subtle, kind of placing things and kind of you know working, kind of commenting whilst also leading the viewer a little bit as well. Um, I mean, how you do you work with a with a musician or, or with it? Yeah, I worked with Dracula Lewis, which well, seems like the amazing, the, <laughs> <laughs> the perfect name, and he's he's from Italy, and he but like he's a, he's a musician. I heard like I went to several gigs, and then I was a huge fan, and then I was like I really kind of as soon as I heard it, I was like I want this music for this film. So I approached him to see if we could. Um, if he could make an original soundtrack for me, and then we um, we kind of just like we 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 he gave me several options. He gave me literally like because he works a lot also with samples, and his music is very cinematic. Also, a lot of the time there's like kind of more like soundscapes or something. So um, and samples from films, and also like Italian film. It had already all this, so it was kind of like finding something almost like perfect already where um and then he gave me just different options to go in a more argento goblin to go into a more carpenter or whatever like direction and and um and we did that very consciously and then i had a second i knew that i wanted to use the cold song by purcell in the film and that it was very hard to use because there was this very well-known version by klaus nomi that's probably a lot of people know, and that's very definitive kind of. And and um, and I found another Italian composer to make a sort of almost like a giallo version of that. But we kept it very much within the idiom of like um, the horror film music. I mean, I think this was a this was a great thing. Like. Um, Someone actually described it like someone wrote a review and it called it a horror movie without horror, which I really like. I think it should be almost a, the tagline for the film <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> and um, and uh, it, what was I going to say now? Um, yeah, so th- there are certain things that, that work really well in genre films. And another thing that I really loved about horror was this kind of camera that tends to glide around a house that kind of embodies usually the, the evil presence coming to, you know, whatever. Um, but uh, just kind of somehow, I guess this is like the, the, the artist's kind of instinct or something. I was really fascinated just in using that, but without it necessarily signifying. Like, I really like the idea that the camera would function in this film as its own entity, mm-hmm. and that it would sort of be sentient or have a sort of consciousness that would allow it to go around and, and look at things. But then I used that less to build up this idea of like other. Uh, the evil is coming or something, but they used it more to actually explore the interior spaces because um, it, then when if you go and see the film on Saturday, you will realize that the, the three main actors that I worked with are all shot in their own homes. And somehow through getting to know them and developing the film, it was also really important to me 
what they had in the houses and to see this sort of more kind of cosmopolitan Mediterranean set of cultural references, but then also that would have like Japanese kind of fan or so, you know, that would crop again in someone else's house. There was all this kind of connection. So, um, so I think also this is kind of great when you, when you have a set of like tools, but then you kind of uh, just see what else they can do if you free them a little bit from the, the thing that they usually have to signify. Um, and I thought, yeah, I thought in your film as well, that was very um, great, like, especially at the end, like, I mean, it's a while ago now, because I saw it in February, but I remember there was also this very strong feeling of ambiguity as to the sanity of the, um, of the main protagonist, the narrative terrorist. And it kind of cast a whole new layer of, you know, the questions about the, the, let's say, if this is a kind of practice of using archaeology towards kind of a nationalistic kind of project, then what would be, you know, what would be the kind of the reason that of replicating that, you know, why would you just, if it's a war, why fight exactly with the same weapon? And where is this character in relation to that? And is she actually, you know, like, is she, is she like a hero or is she almost like more borderline anti-hero or, I was curious about that. I don't know. You, maybe you can say a bit more about this. Uh, well, it's supposed to be ambiguous. I mean, uh, you're not, you don't know if she's being interviewed by a psychiatrist or by a journalist, by the Mossad, maybe. Um, so it's uh, it's all these things, and it's, and the timing and the time uh, is supposed to also be very confusing. You don't know if she's in the future, past, or, and I think it kind of is. Um, very much about what she's dealing with as a person who's really as uh, in a position where she's trying to change that narrative. And to what extent is she willing to take that exercise uh, without coming across as insane? Um, I mean, how how much of uh, of her practice is um, is something that uh, comes out of a trauma or um, a um, desperation rather than uh, than it may be a kind of what you could say a normal way of reacting to something uh, so it is supposed to be uh, kind of over, overdone over dramatic over quite insane yeah. well, I think mm -hmm. the ambiguity is also in this it, it seems to be sort of a, a rationality hers a rationality run amok in a sense that the, the, there's a, a logic that permeates her whole line of thinking, but eventually the rationality is sort of beyond, a step or two beyond reason in a sense, uh, which is which is why there are also throughout the dialogue that she has with what we label her psychiatrist, uh, a, a couple of small conflicts between them where we're, we're yeah. testing, constantly testing the sanity of this. Are you saying that? Are you really saying that? But haven't you said that before? This, this kind of conflict yeah. where she recedes, she 
sort of retracts back into her shell and doesn't really know how to how to assess. And also, there's a cyclic cyclicality to the whole piece in the sense that it starts by repeating a dream sequence of porcelain falling from the sky, uh, and it actually ends up by repeating that very same dream, dream sequence. So it seems also that the interview situation is something it it, it has takes the form of. A, a repeated sort of assessment, psychological assessment, or an interrogation where we're trying to find flaws in your... Mm. And I guess the idea is also that, once again, it's some kind of stab at... We, we always pictured this uh, person to be, this rebel leader to be uh, an ex-academic that had enough of all the writing and, and, and the, 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 the publications and, and, and closed circuit and just wanted to go out and and triggered, triggered possibly by the loss of her sister that plays a great part in the film um, as a narrative device also for, for accentuating the idea of, sort of not just national but also personal loss. So the sister, the lost sister that appears as a sort of, as a historical remnant and also sort of symbolizes her attempt to sort of renegotiate and reconnect with the past. I mean, that whole strain also is something that puts her sanity to the test. So there is an ambiguity as to whether or not she it's just mm. out there good or out there very, very bad, uh, in a sense. So, yeah. And is she, is she on that note, uh, a lost hero or an actual sort of up-and-coming star of, of, of local narrative history? Yeah. I think that's something that both works share is this um, kind of exploration of the subjective and the objective or that they're both kind of under investigation or like where one stops and one starts they're kind of both being kind of searched through or explored amongst kind of a whole myriad of other questions as well I think. Um, I haven't thought well there are other things to talk about but I wanted to open it up to the audience as we've been chatting for this while. Anyone have a question or sort of a comment on either the films or the filmmakers or even just the subject at hand? Yeah. I asked some people about the immigration in the production. Um, how, um, how do you find what you want to do so involved in the In Greece? Yeah, in Thailand and I've been living there for five years. So it was the second film that I made there. And um, the, the amazing thing about Greece, working in Greece as a, as a filmmaker, is that it's not a massive scene also of people that work in the industry. And then also a lot of people that work in the industry also tend to work in theater or are very close to the arts in general. So. Um, and, and kind of like uh, some of the most interesting directors of the last years, like someone like Hector Sligitsos, for example, who made the boy that eating the bird food. He comes from a cinema background and went, no, he comes from a theater background, went into cinema. So there's a lot of kind of crossover. And I found that um, for, for the particular way I work, I found that really tremendously kind of, I mean, I, I made the first film there without an intention of staying there, but then it just sort of happened and I kind of felt like this is really a place where I have the people around me that I want to, I want to work with. It's a huge difference from London where people are much more um, industry kind of streamlined 
into certain ways of, of thinking and also the references that they will have, they will be quite specific to whatever their their kind of specialist kind of, you know, thing is. So you 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 spend a lot more, even though I always had great people to work with here as well. I had to look for them a really long time and you still spend a lot of time explaining on set why why you want something that this way and not that way if it's not the way that it's usually done or something. So I felt like in Greece there was um this was this was kind of less of a, of an issue and I felt I was more like even the industry people I worked with, I all felt like they were more like artists. Yeah. Hi, uh, thanks for such a great talk. Um, I want to ask you guys uh, regarding short films. What of you like, you know, doing genre films? Which uh, and for short film, do you consider releasing online, or do you prefer going via festival road? Because genre, especially, you have like huge fan base online, and. Uh, and you know, by running Kickstarter campaign and stuff, if you want to turn that into future film as well, that fan base is there to help you, you know, funding your process. And, you know, if they like it, and you know, especially if your film is very visual, especially sci-fi, but there's a lot of gamers and stuff like that. And the fact that film festivals are usually more drama, they prefer more drama than genre things. So, for short films, about like ten minutes short films. 10 minutes long short film or like seven minute long short film. So do you still prefer going via festival route than um, releasing online? Um, I mean, we 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 kind of we're we're bound by one particular thing. We always wanted to release online, specifically also the previous film uh, Nation Estate, because mainly uh, because we felt it belonged kind of out there in the public domain because it was an important political um, message. And also because at the time of doing the film, we didn't have an exhibition set up in Palestine where we felt that it needed to be shown and therefore releasing online would have been a great thing. Uh, and then our distributor signed a couple of contracts with television channels that prevented that. Uh, so, so that became a problem. And, and that is like a sad problem. It seems like an outdated problem, but it's still very much uh, a problem in, in the sense that film festivals still want that premiere status and, and if it's online then all of a sudden you can wave goodbye to any kind of A festival and you have to wait to the second wave of festivals and it just becomes, it's, it's complicated I think we're in the VHS Betamax sort of period of, of releasing online type of thing, we should, it should be possible because it needs to be out there, that's how you cultivate a fan base, but the festival legislations and the television contracts and whatever else you have contract-wise often do tend to prevent that like uh, multifaceted release in a sense. So if, if you're getting a television contract, is it like because still you constraining audience? Your client? I mean, I don't know, is, is it worth like signing that contract to releasing online if you have no, to balance it? possibly not. <laughs> it just it's, it just still has a couple of years in it. That's the only problem. Yeah, especially with the sci-fi. The majority of the story, like you know, I've been hearing from Hollywood is like, especially Deadpool. It's it's a superhero film, which they did short film, which uh, Universal uh, 
So Warner Brothers or Universal Studios didn't agree to it, but they leaked it, leaked online, and users started liking it. Everyone mm. started liking it. They now released it, which is like still considerably less with like 25 million budget, but they made like huge money out of it. Like, you know, huge success, great story, everything, right? So, you, in the next film, you prefer like, you know, cutting down, okay, running for festivals and stuff like that for six months, seven months, three yeah. months, then releasing online. Possibly. It would be nice to have a combo of all that where nothing sort of trips the other uh, aspect of it. I mean, in our case, it's also, as, as we do, like with, with this, uh, appearing in an art context where like galleries involved and all that also want sort of a limited edition version and that seems to conflict with the very idea of online availability. I mean there's a lot of small fine-tuning on, on that whole structure that, that needs to benefit the films more than the individual sort of right holders. That would be nice. Yeah. Because there's an ongoing tension isn't it really? How, I mean some films interestingly <coughs> You can, I mean, John Smith is a very established filmmaker in this country, but his film Girl Chain Gum, I think, you can watch it online, buy it on a DVD, you can rent it and also take modern owner copy in the collection. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of the few examples that kind of just crosses through, but that, you know, it's, that's quite rare. I think you had a question. Uh, so there's a mic. Okay. There's a mic coming, even though you're very close. Um, just listen to what you're talking about with your political content within your film. I'm just curious if you ever come with any difficulty or like resistance to showing it in institutions because of its political content. Uh, well, in the previous film that I made, I there was a big scandal, political scandal. Uh, I was should I tell? This? It's a very long story. Um, oh, sounds uh, interesting. <laughs> 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 it's, uh, I was nominated as one of uh, eight. Um, photographers for a prize that was run by a, a museum in Switzerland. And the sponsor for this museum was Lacoste, the clothing company. Um, and um, I, I never applied for this prize. I was just received a phone call out of the blue and um, they nominated me for, and their theme that year was Joy of Life. And I w completely got confused when I got this call uh, because, and I said, but you know my portfolio, if you're choosing me based on my, my work, um, that I have nothing to do with that. Um, <laughs> and they said that, oh, that, that's really great, um, but we want an ironic take on this because they wanted the direct you know, interpretation of the theme. So, okay. Um, and I had this idea of you know, representing um, the Palestinian, uh, you know, the entire Palestinian population in one huge skyscraper as an ironic take of, on what would a future Palestinian state look like, because there's hardly any sp space left in for a Palestinian state to exist. Uh, and they thought that was an amazing, you know, take on the theme. And um, so they gave each uh, photographer a bursary, a small bursary to, um, do three sketches, um, and I think the winner would get uh, out of the eight uh, competitors. Uh, I think the winner would get twenty thousand pounds. So it's quite considerable to if you want to do a film. Um, so I submitted those sketches, and they were very happy with them. And we were about they were about to launch uh, their eight photographers online with their work and. And just the day before the launch, um, they called me again and said, 
they have good news and bad news. Um, the bad news is that Lacoste, um, somebody high up in Lacoste, decided that my work was too pro-Palestinian, and therefore they want to remove me completely from the list of artists. Um, and that they tried as a museum, of course, they cannot just remove an artist, so they tried to negotiate with Lacoste, but they're so adamant, and therefore it's either me leaving the competition or they cancelled the whole prize. And um, so I didn't have anything to, really to say if they just, they're just basically telling me that's the way it's going to be. But they said that they're going to send me a contract uh, the next day to, because Obviously, I'm not in the competition, so I have to sign a different contract. And the next day, I received a contract saying that um, I left the competition um, to seek other opportunities. You uh, left the, co the according competition to my own voluntarily to seek other opportunities. Shaila, um, this was a good. That was a good news. No, the, the good news. The good news was. The good news was that if you go along with signing this, we'll give you a solo show in about a year's time, where this whole whole thing blows over. So the, the whole thing just seemed like, uh, it just didn't look good for me at all. And the more they were bribing me with more, uh, you know, good news, the more it, <laughs> <laughs> the more it just uh, became possible for me to stay silent. So I have, have a friend at the, who works at The Independent, and she advised me to write a, um, a, a press release, press release uh, and helped me. Uh, write it. Uh, and so I told the museum that I cannot really be silent because it's just going to look completely bad for me. Uh, and they kind of wished me good luck. And I think because, you know, an artist is really so weak in these situations uh, compared to Lacoste, you know. Um, but the, the, the story just went completely um, crazy um, in I think after we really uh, we announced this uh, at the independent maybe an hour later the BBC called and it just I think Sarah and I were answering phone calls emails 24 hours we had straight. A war room set up, I think right? we didn't change our clock we woke up and we started <laughs> you know uh, answering phone calls it was just it became completely mad and I think um, after 48 hours the museum uh, called me and said, we have good good news for real. <laughs> 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 um, that they decided to drop the sponsorship of Lacoste and they're siding by the artist for, to, uh, for, uh, to side by artistic freedom of expression. That they just saved themselves like this <laughs> closely because after 24 hours they released a statement, they, they said... Uh, they shut down, like there were so many journalists calling the cost headquarters and, and the museum's headquarters all day that they shut their phone like line. Like you could film out that. Yeah. <laughs> but they shut down their phone lines and also their Facebook pages also got completely swamped. Uh, but after 24 hours, a first statement came out saying that uh, there has been absolutely a complete misunderstanding. They stand side by side, Lacoste and the museum. and. Uh, the artist's uh, perception that there was any political censorship involved in this is out of proportion. Um, so, please. Oh, give, it's give us because a break. I didn't um, ah, comply didn't, with yeah. the theme, which was joy of oh, life. Right. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Um, so yeah, and then after uh, after that, I was called. Um, I was even invited to U the UN to speak about because freedom freedom of artistic expression is considered freedom of speech. Uh, when you when you think it's it's under that umbrella, so um, um, it, it's it's quite interesting where these things take you. But um, and it's not the first time I get censored, but this was just so blatant. Um, and the fact that the, uh, the director of the museum told me himself that why I was censored, I think he, he told me too much. He shouldn't have. Really yeah, he regrets yeah. those <laughs> few soundbites. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? I mean, I know it's good to record the conversations for posterity, but sometimes I think the, the microphone is an unne unnecessary kind of mediating device. Do you know sure. what I mean? That kind of it limits the Friends democracy of the conversation. Yeah, but anyway, um, I just would just like to ask Larissa and Soren to talk us a little bit more about the genesis of the project in, in, outside of the film element, because mm -hmm. I know that. Um, I hope you don't mind me asking about this, but I'm utterly fascinated by it because you're actually also performing art actions in Palestine as part of the overall project. I just think that's really fantastic. And also, again, you know, you put yourselves out there and, and take risks because of what the work you make is really important politically. Um, so it'd be, just be really interesting to hear more about that. Uh, I mean, sometimes I think because we're so used to working with uh, Israel, Palestine that we sometimes kind of think that oh it's risky but nothing really happens but uh, this time Soren when he got back told me that he was this close to a shooting uh, when he was leaving the airport and yeah. that's when it just you start realizing that this is scary I mean that's why uh, when you leave the Israeli airport a lot of times they confiscate your uh, films um, it's and you start realizing why art is potent. Otherwise, you're, you, um, people were not going to be, you know, put in prisons for their work. Or um, so it, it is considered threatening for states to to have um, uh, artistic work that's uh, tackling uh, politics. But you, but you just came on Sunday. Yeah, no, but I mean, maybe the genesis of the project is that it started as an idea for a performance where we wanted to take crates and crates of porcelain to Palestine and bury it throughout the country and then document that and that would be the end of it and we decided eventually that for sheer shipping and shipping reasons maybe making a science fiction film would be easier and um, <laughs> so that took two years and two years later we decided that maybe we should come full circle and actually carry out the act set forth by the narrative terrorist and we did so by just making smaller deposits, symbolic deposits of porcelain and mapping out like symbolic locations. First time was in April, I think, where I did six uh, deposits in Palestine in relation with um, uh, local art institutions. We facilitated something just inside the old city walls of Jerusalem, which was a very symbolic deposit. We buried 10 plates, sort of indicative of a small a family or something like this. Uh, a meter, meter and a half into uh, a, a community garden inside the old city on Israeli Independence Day, 
which made it quite uh, both symbolically interesting but also quite scary in the sense that they're over patrolling the area on that day um, and just on the city wall of Jerusalem they're walking there with their machine guns so we had to almost like find a break in the or the gap between sort of before we did that and and the owner of the community or the, the caretaker of the community garden was also quite aware that we need to not get caught doing this because uh, archaeology is a potent national sport and digging is too. Uh, Palestinians do not have as many uh, permits to dig as, as, uh, as their counterparts. So what, what they did in the community garden was to uh, pretend to replant an olive tree. Uh, so they dug out an olive tree, put it over there and dug a deep hole there. And then we came, deposited the porcelain, they put the olive tree back covered that up. Uh, we did that six times and then we did another nine times, uh, nine digs now, just last week in, in, uh, in relation to the uh, biennial down there, Kalandia International, documenting each dig, um, some of them now inside of Israel rather than in the West Bank in Jerusalem, but waterborne there as I would be stopped immediately if I started digging holes in, in Haifa and uh, acre and stuff like that and what we're doing with those uh, deposits symbolic as they are i mean we, we, we we're kind of we're, we're taking down the coordinates uh, and engraving them into small metal discs and inserting those metal discs into small uh, replicas of the bombs that are used for porcelain distribution in the film which again are based on an old russian nuke from the cold war and making sort of a fabergé egg um, out of a bomb so whenever you lift up the lid of this thing that sits on its wingtips, like a 20 centimeter bronze sculpture. Inside you see the coordinates in, in sort of a spacey font to the remote deposit of porcelain. And the whole project is called Archaeology in Absentia, which is a, sort of the culmination or the revisiting of the genesis of the entire project. Um, so the idea is that any museum or collector that holds this bomb eventually becomes the sort of remote protector of a, of a deposit of porcelain in Palestine. Uh, get the, get why you're doing what you're doing because mm. that's so much part of the, yeah. the discourse is so strong. But down there they really respond to, to, yeah. to that scene, knowing well what it means on a daily basis for their for the confiscation of yeah. more and more land. And we got a lot of help. Um, for example, we can't and it's so hard to enter Gaza. I've never been myself. Um, so we got a lot of help. We have we have help from the French Institute took some of the porcelain to bury in Gaza. Um, but yeah, so so we have a, a lot of people who actually s took some porcelain to dig in various parts that we can't access. And it's also in, in, in the spirit of the project itself that you, you have this collaborative effort and you have venues agreeing to be part of this. Uh, venues also historical, sort of Nazareth is inside of Israel, but has a very strong Palestinian significance. So we buried stuff there as well. And to have people sort of come around, help dig even, like uh, to that effect, and witness this ceremonial burial uh, is sort of in the spirit of the, the project as well. So, yeah. Sounds amazing. Thanks. And we're just sort of coming to the end now, but I people had a chance to sort of ask a question. I'm wondering if there was anything that any of you wanted to just kind of say around the things we've been talking about which you perhaps have had a chance to do so from the chat so far not no pressure <laughs> just more an opportunity in case you thought had thoughts beforehand 
about the same, but okay. Well, otherwise, um, uh, moderation will be shown Saturday, so Anya will be present with uh, Mila Levinsky, <coughs> who is the sort of collaborator and actress in the film. So we're having a conversation then again um, as part of the screening. So do come and see the film. Um, and for now, just join me in thanking the, the uh, our panel today. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.